Brilliant. But Stephen, tell us a bit about yourself for, for starters. I'm Stephen Trey. I am a neighbour of Chris and Debbie, actually, for about 12, 13 years now, I think. Um, so living in, um, in Lurgan. Before that, uh, Eileen, who's here, my wife and I, and our two kids, we were mission partners in South America in Paraguay for, for eight years, where we taught in a Christian school. And uh, we did see some interesting things to do with sort of climate and severe weather there a wee bit. Uh, and before that, I worked in Queens um, in the School of Geosciences, uh, helping with research there. And so my background is geography and environmental sciences as well. So we kind of understood about climate change and stuff way back in the late 80s, early 90s. Wow. Um, so, Stephen, what over sort of more recent years has sparked your interest in climate change and, and maybe doing something about climate change? Well, as I said, in South America we first saw things like we had extreme heat, you know, about 40 degrees sometimes, and we actually had people coming, there would regularly be people coming looking for food at the house and that. But during, I distinctly remember one really hot day, it was about 42 Celsius, I think, and somebody came to the door and begged for water, right? And it struck me, you know, that passage in Matthew 10 where people will come and, and beg for water and what's your response to that, you know? Um, as well, there was, there was flooding when we were there and we helped communities where they were, they were, they were put out, we were flooded. There was severe drought when we were there and there was indigenous churches up in the interior and uh, the church helped to ship uh, tankers of water up to them. And then we also had a dengue fever epidemic which has begun to spread throughout South America because of a warming climate. And we were sort of sheltering under mosquito nets and stuff for a number of, of weeks, months, as people around us were getting sick. Um, then, so that was a, that first experience, you know, seeing poverty, seeing it made worse by all this stuff. Uh, but coming back, settling back here, and you know, the reverse culture shock of settling back into this kind of Western lifestyle and, and things. Um, but then in 2013, saw a picture that changed my life. If you want to look this up, you can Google it. It's a, a young boy called Joshua Kator, C-A-T-O-R. And his uh, family were devastated in the Philippines and um, uh, with Typhoon Haiyan. As, as he watched as, as uh, mother and, and sister get swept away, they, they were killed. And his whole town, you know, five, thousands of people were killed. His, the devastation, he's standing, this boy with cuts in this devastation. And that was the most strongest storm ever, uh, hurricane kind of storm to make landfall. Yeah, and it, it just wiped out the homes of a million people. We, we had seen people like that in South America, poor people. And, and to see that that an entire city got wiped out, it just struck me that we had to start doing stuff as Christians, you know? And uh, so that was the trigger for me to really start taking action in this back about 2014 or so. Okay, and, and so what did that action start to look like? What, what did you do? Because it must be very hard to think, like, where do you start? Yeah, um, well, I really, before I answer that, I want to really thank the, uh, uh, the presentations, who gave these presentations before, because they explained it every all, you know. <laughs> kind of things that we have to, the context and what, the kind of things we need to do. So I don't have to get into a lot of detail, you know, but 
Um, we, we really, what, what I did was took the opportunity to, to be that prophetic voice. I think um, I go to St. Saviour's and uh, the Belfast Road during Dolling's time. I had a chance around that time to get on the General Senate of the Church of Ireland. So you were speaking to the, all the bishops, the, the, the senior managers, um, called the representative church body, and uh, you know 500 delegates from around the whole country, and got up there and said, this is really important. All this stuff about we need to care for creation, it's there from, the, from Genesis right the way through to Revelation, and uh, we are to do something. That justice issue, where the poor are suffering because of uh, this uncontrollable pollution that we're putting into the atmosphere, and we are contributing to that. Our, the Church of Ireland, through its pension fund, was investing in fossil fuel companies. The top four uh, of the 10 uh, were fossil fuel companies, and I just pointed this out, saying this, we have to change this. Um, took a number of years, but eventually people began to support that idea, and then 2018, there was a motion passed so that they would uh, divest from fossil fuels, right? Um, so over the last, there's a couple of motions, over the last 10 years, that's been about 50 million euro has been pulled out of fossil fuel companies and invested into more green investments. Not, not to the church, to kind of did that quietly. This year, they're completing that process and they've made, they made more noise about it, put press releases out and stuff. And that has influenced other churches. And exactly somebody here tonight who's helped with that, the Presbyterian Church. They also have announced divestment this year of about three million pounds invested in fossil fuel companies. So it's like sort of these giant dominoes are beginning to fall, you know, and uh, that's the church saying we can change society. You know, that's the kingdom of God at work. That really is. And the more we we're able to talk about stuff that we care about. You know, one thing I want you to take away tonight, I think the Lord put this in my head, whenever people were talking. You don't need to understand all this stuff, right? You just need to care, okay? You need to care about the poor around the world who are suffering. You need to care about the future for your children, your grandchildren. You need to care about uh, the, the nature that we're seeing getting devastated. If you love your fish and chips on a Friday night, if you care about fish, then you care about climate change, right? If you care about coffee, we all had a coffee or tea. If you love your tea or coffee, you care about climate change because those things, the people who grow those are suffering and we're, we're, they will pay the price before we do. You know? So let's care. Let's care about what we can do. So uh, I really think the church can take a lead. It's part of our mission uh, that we can make this change. We can bring uh, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ here on earth as it is now. Okay, let me let me ask you a question that has kind of come to my mind that I haven't asked you about before. But why why do you think that is that in in the church in general this is such a niche kind of subject and that maybe a minority minority subject that we care deeply about and how how can we start to change that? I have thought long and hard about this, you know, and I think it's because it's a gigantic topic. And it is hard to understand, you know. And uh, there is debate. Uh, it's it's good to be skeptical, you know. I'm a skeptic. I'm a fossil fuel skeptic, right? 
Because whenever you hear BP saying, we're going green, I'm very skeptical about that. Because they've got green in their logo. Yeah. Well, they used to call themselves Beyond Petroleum in, in about 2000. That was, they changed their logo and then they reversed that about five or six years later. Right? 96% uh, of, of fossil fuel spending is on increasing and exploring for more fossil fuels. Right? Uh, about 4% of their spending is on sort of reducing you know, trying to go into hydrogen or whatever, like we've heard about a wee bit. 96% of it is continuing on as normal. <laughs> like that, I'm a skeptic whenever I hear fossil fuel companies saying they want to change. Um, the, uh, so, sorry, I've forgotten your question now, Chris. <laughs> that is really, why do you think it's such a niche minority right. of Christians that seem to care about this sort I, of stuff? I was saying it's such a big, big topic to understand, right? And we, but we don't need to understand. Sometimes, I, my big thing, all of my life has been evangelism and mission, right? You know, we sold everything to go and do mission abroad, to bring the good news of Christ to, to young people in a school where we had that opportunity we felt God called us to. I've run Alpha courses in every single church I've ever been in because I want to reach out with the good news to people who don't know Christ. That's why I care about this, right? Because mission is important. And oftentimes, we're focused in on starting the story with you know, sin, okay? And, and ending it when we, when we know Christ and we, we, we go to heaven. And what we've done is we've put a frame, this is our, 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 the frame that we view the world in, right? But that's, the Bible actually starts in Genesis chapter one with creation, and it ends in, in Revelation 21 with a new creation. And we've, our framework is too small for the big picture, right? And we have to rethink a little bit. I've read about Chris, Reverend Dr. Chris Wright, who often comes to Northern Ireland, he's actually from Northern Ireland, theologian, he, he speaks at uh, New Horizons and stuff. Uh, he's, he's very good on this. Uh, he came and spoke in Ireland a few years ago and really opened my eyes completely. Uh, he, he says that people often leave off the first two chapters in the last two chapters of the Bible and they talk about mission uh, and what they're doing is they're forgetting about creation and new creation and you explain it you know it's, it's the big picture of redemption um, even Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 whenever people thought they were gods and stuff uh, they said no no they, they started talking about creation first that was part of their evangelism right there are tens of thousands, I was in Glasgow that big march, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets calling for change, especially young people. These young people need hope and we have the hope to give them of a new earth that can be restored, of a new relationship with the creator. And to me, that opportunity for mission and evangelism is enormous. Imagine the opportunities that churches got their act together in, in that, right? And it's, it, but it's not just sort of reaching out to people to speak to them with the good news, it's about taking actions, about demonstrating that we care, you know, and there's lots of things I think we can do as churches as well as individuals. Yeah, I, I really love that. I love the, the fact that actually, you know, we, we should care because there's, there's a justice issue, there's the, the poverty issue, but actually if we extend the framework and we think this is actually, this should be our thing, 
this should be the thing actually that we're not dragging our heels on but we're actually leading on because we believe that the bible is is the word of god and the word of god says god created the earth and it's good and he calls us to steward it and actually you know as much as we can and should pick up books on on climate change we probably need to re-pick up the the big black book and go through it and, and read it and I, you know one of the things that i find fascinating is as we read through scripture it, it never talks about climate change but like weave throughout it is this actual harmony with um an and understanding of creation you know even you think about how many times jesus uses something about creation as a metaphor to tell a story because he's completely at harmony and completely at peace with the creation around him how many times the psalmist uses creation to point towards god to give glory to god um, it, it's there just weave throughout scripture God has placed us um, here uh, and our link and our connection with creation I think has just become weaker and weaker in, in certain ways and particularly because of like mass food production and, and stuff like that that we just find ourselves disconnected. Um, so what does, what does practical action look like um, for us uh, as uh, maybe corporately as a church? Um, but also maybe individually as well. How do we actually, you know, because one of my, no, I'm going to say one of my fears, but, you know, if everybody after tonight was to kind of go, right, Chris, the church needs to do something about climate change, I would be saying yes, but it's a bit like saying, you know, the church needs to do something about evangelism when it's actually the people in the church need to do something about evangelism. So how do we take the same kind of thought process when it comes to climate change? Okay. Um, I think... There's, there's a lot of stuff we can do, so here's a couple of practical things. Um, really, what we need to do in the next decade is uh, critical, right? And I think churches need to, need to look at themselves and take a lead in this. For example, could a church by 2030, so say that, set that target date, cut its energy use and all its emissions and stuff in half, right? And there's tools that can help with this, like there's 360carbon.org, specially designed for churches to do an energy audit, right? So you can go through, look at all that you do, and think, what can we, what could we do as a church to reduce our energy? It could be as simple as changing the energy provider to somebody who only provides green energy in Northern Ireland. We do, you can get one or two who do that. But there's other stuff as well, and there's checklists and things like that to do. So challenge ourselves. But that's just not the church in this building. It's like every individual, you know, uh, could you use the car a third less? You know, save up your journey so you don't do that trip to the shop today and another trip tomorrow, but you do one trip instead of the two, you know, cut it in half, things like that. Or could you go into Belfast on the train rather than drive up the other time you're going up? You know, those wee changes. And we just sort of take stock and be deliberately thinking. Or um, when we buy stuff, you know, really ask ourselves, do we need that? Uh, can, can that wait? Um, you know, or if we're, you talked about the waste going into the bin, let's make an effort to really uh, not have a full green bin, but have a half full green bin, you know, and things like that. Be deliberate. Go to those shops that have zero waste. Or it could be as simple as just go to the green grocer instead of going to Tesco's for your fruit and veg and just only buy the loose stuff and don't buy the stuff wrapped in plastic. We small changes like that. But as a church, you know, the church decides we're going to start doing this. And you keep talking about it, you know, it becomes part of church life, 
So that's one thing. Secondly, I think churches could make a kind of a climate action group or an environmental action group uh, that meets, who knows, once a month or whatever. And you can, there's tons of resources out there. You can use Christian Aid, you can use Tear Fund, you can get their literature, join in their campaigns, you can pray for the initiatives they're asking for, for you to pray for, but really get involved with that advocacy stuff. There's one coming up, um, you can go online and send a Christmas card to Boris Johnson at the minute. It's, you know, saying the proof of the puddings and the eating, right? And so that, that's one you can do, and that's Tear Fund Christian are both doing that. But if you get a wee church group that deliberately met occasionally and said, right, what are we doing now, right? That group could also be an outreach group because there's loads of people out there who are looking for like-minded people to do this stuff with. You never have darkened the door of a church, right? And if they hear there's a wee action group in their local town, they'll come to that, right? And you'll build up the relationships and so on, make friendships. And uh, so that can be part of your actual outreach, okay? So uh, sort of corporate action and discussion, then small group action, that kind of thing. And uh, we talked a lot about sort of individual stuff that we can do, so we'll leave that with, with what you've done. Also, I think we can, we can be good consumers. That's number one, right? Second one is we can be good citizens. And this is where I think um, it certainly challenged me uh, personally because it's about engaging with the decision makers, right? Start off with me in the Church of Ireland, sort of uh, engaging with the decision makers there and who run the pensions funds and investments and stuff. But I also did quietly engage with our MP, with our councillors and that kind of thing, because they are the decision makers for our area. You know, uh, We could engage with our council about what they do with their pension, right? And ask them, take a lead, take a lead in this. Um, you know, there's 33 million pounds in the local government pension scheme invested in fossil fuel companies. We could change that, you know, by bugging our councillors saying, you need to sort this out, take a lead, you know, uh, you want young people to vote for you next year, we'll do this kind of stuff, you know. They'd do anything for a vote. <laughs> you know, just ring them up and hassle them. And that's really what engagement is. You don't need to understand it, you just need to care. You know, say, this is important to me. Um, I want to see this change come quicker. And you as a politician or some kind of leader in business, uh, maybe you, you're, you work for a, a business or something, maybe you work in a bank, you should say to your bank, are we investing in fossil fuel companies, you know, in our corporate investment wing? Maybe we should change that. What can I do to write, who can I bring up and hassle in my, in my workplace? Um, things like that, you know, uh, as we can be good citizens uh, and we can be good consumers, those two things. Super. Super. Okay, brilliant. Um, give Stephen a round of applause. Um, and if you stay there, Stephen, uh, if Laura and Gillian could come up as well and take a wee seat. We only have a few minutes, but I would love to get some questions to, to these guys. If you can think of your hardest, most complicated questions that are really controversial, um, or just some nice ones even. But do we have any questions from anybody here just for these guys? It'd be really good to ask them a couple of things. A few, no, hold on, sorry. a few years ago, we 
years ago, we updated our oil boiler <laughs> to a grant one, which was supposed to be, you know, more efficient and so on. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, you know, lobbying fossil fuel companies, but, you know, we buy oil, and um, usually several times a year. You know, I suppose in a way I could feel a bit hypocritical. Um, it, it's probably lack of information. Uh, you know, we didn't look at other sources of fuel whenever we were updating our boiler. Um, but we thought we were doing something more efficient. You know, uh, have you adv any advice on that sort of issue? You know, how do you think about improving, you know, our, our practices as regards the use of, of heating oil, for instance? Yeah, we, we well, two years ago we put gas in, right, uh, from oil. Now, the reason we put gas in is because I can't afford a heat pump, right? I, I could I afford the £2,000 over a couple of years rather than the £16,000 or whatever it is, right? But we need to really lobby the our local politicians to say, this needs to happen. We need to have support for people who, who could change, right? We need to have maybe, you know, local scale heating like that kind of stuff. Don't feel hypocritical about being a consumer. We need to reduce, but we don't need to cut out. That's impossible, right? We, we could not live completely without fossil fuels at the minute. But we don't need to expand fossil fuel extraction. 80% of it needs to stay on the ground. You know, we need to use the small amount that we have to in the next couple of decades to transition off it. Um, gas is more efficient than oil. A new gas, a new oil boiler, boiler is more efficient than an old one, right? So you did the right thing, and don't feel guilty about that, right? Um, do you want to add on, Gillian? Um, yeah, so I guess it, it depends where you're living as well. Obviously, if you're in cities, you're going to be easier access to gas. Um, I think there's gas into the west as well to try and go a little bit rural, but for example, my, my folks live uh, as far north as you can go, out in the sticks can't get gas, just recently changed their look to change their oil boiler and I was saying well yeah get the most efficient oil condensing boiler that you can, especially because the manufacturers are still manufacturing but the system is going to change so once the system changes the, the plan would be to try and encourage folk off the oil to the gas network because they're going to eventually change the gas network to part sort of like hydrogen part gas or there'll be a mix there but that that's that's the energy strategy that we're waiting on also the government um there are grants at the moment um if anybody is interested in knowing information that i can send that to, to chris actually you can you can send a link out um to yourself so there are there are grants for a particular threshold depending on what your income is um to help incentivize and support home dwellers to change from um, whatever your your boiler might be, depending on the age of it, over to a new one. Um, and with the energy strategy coming, there will, the government's going to have to incentivise and help householders because of the cost, um, just as Stephen said, for air source pumps, it's, it's extortionate, the, the, the price of these things. Um, yeah, so your microphone's just died. Do you want to be Stephen's one there? Or did you want to be? 
Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much, yes. Um, so, yeah, so the, the government is behind the scenes, it's going to have to do something to help because householders aren't, aren't going to afford all of these changes. So, I don't know what the plan is going yeah. to be. But I, I think what we can do is if we have to change something or, or you know, we're, we're making a decision, is make the best decision that we can at that particular time because, it, you know, uh, there will always be something new, there will always be additional changes. Any other questions? I think the point that with solar panels already built in, you'll start to see homes um, with uh, very well insulated, and this will be the interesting one, because if the summers become warmer, mm -hmm. and your house is so robustly insulated, then you're going to fry, aren't you? So um, <laughs> the changes that we make here, um, it, it, it hasn't, it, it's designed to make it more economical for the winter, but like you have the challenge then, the summer, but all, all homes being built, there's new building standards for those now, um, ground floor heating, um, heat recovery within houses, the windows that you put in that draw heat in, reflect heat out, all, all of those types of things are, um, are changes. The big challenge is going to be, you know, for inner cities that, you know, how are you going to refurbish Houses that you can't insulate, you can't put insulation into your attic, or you're restricted and limited. So, will the future of cities eventually will they knock down old houses and rebuild? Um, it's it's all those types of things are going to be interesting. Yeah, super. Any any other questions in the room, Morris? Thank you very much for all your yeah. Thank you very much for all your tools tonight. Yeah. Um, would you have any comments on food waste and maybe even the hospitality industry? Can you hear Mickey McDonald's on the way home? Or? <laughs> <laughs> do, do you mean processes for us or, you know, just... Just food waste, yeah, just the impact of food waste. That's not you. Um, so just for the hospitality industry in terms of, uh, it, well, any, oh, anything to do yeah, with food yeah. waste? Um, we also produce and reusable. Oh yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. There, there's, well, one of the interesting things is if you think of, um, I always get frustrated with supermarkets, for example, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, if you've got a bent carrot, mm -hmm. they, won't, they won't sell it. <laughs> and you've got these mountains of bent carrots. Um, and all of this food that's actually really good quality food, but just because it doesn't look right, um, it doesn't get get sold. That's a side issue. But hospitality, there's um, what they call like um, from farm to fork. So if you're thinking of the whole food chain in terms of farmers and how they grow foods to start with, and then um, you're producing that, producing your products through factories, and then. Uh, 
whoever's buying that in terms of rethinking hotels or restaurants buying food. I think one of the challenges really is um, in terms of buying just what you actually need um, and uh, portion sizes. So there's a lot of research that's actually happening in terms of like the sustainable food chain, if you want to think of it in that way. Uh, all food waste is ideally doesn't go to landfill. I think there are some exemptions for that. Um, so food waste will either go for composting um, and, uh, and I guess um, the other aspect of that is um, there's other areas where food waste goes. Yeah, I think um, interestingly you had on, on your list the, the Northern Ireland food strategy and I've been involved in a few conversations about that more from a, like a food bank you know, sort of situation. But, you know, certainly some food waste can actually come to, for example, the community sector to help feed people uh, who need it. But that's not really a long term kind of strategic way to think, because in a way what happens is that, and this is one of the things I'm trying to prevent, is that um, businesses see the community sector as a way of dumping their food waste. So rather than actually thinking, let's reduce food waste, they're like, well, let's push it on the community sector. And so you have situations where you know, somebody has a 40-foot lorry full of grated cheese that's been turned back by Tesco's and they're saying, oh, we're going to donate this to the community sector, but it's really just them trying to avoid the, um, you know, the bills. But um, a few years ago, I was speaking to uh, the, one of the research directors for Moy Park, and he was saying that one of the biggest issues that, that they have in terms of waste is that... Um, they uh, they grow whole chickens. They come with like legs and uh, other parts of their body, right? And the, there are different colours of meat. And what colour do we want? White. But there's all this other... So our consumption, of, for example, of chicken is that we only want the, the white pieces of the chicken. So then they have to try and find other things to do. So there's actually potentially a huge amount of waste or that that... that, that other parts of those products is used in, in other ways and then eventually ends up either potentially being thrown out or used for example to feed animals when actually if we changed our, our the way we bought stuff and went I'm going to buy a whole chicken and try and figure out how to eat all of the meat on it rather than just go and give me the breasts of the chicken as if breasts kind of of chicken just uh, like grow somewhere they don't they come with a whole chicken that, that needs to stuff needs to happen with you know um, so I think we can change our, our eating habits and our consumption habits to reduce food waste uh, fundamentally uh, as well. Just to, just to give a wee comment on that for, for Morris too, um, just on that thing about supermarkets. Um, and there is a really great book um, that really opened my eyes to food waste by Tristram Stewart. Um, and it's, it's called Waste, and then there's a semicolon, and then there's, there's something else in the title. Um, <laughs> but Tristram Stewart, um, really excellent about... Um, the waste in the food chain before it even gets to the supermarket mm -hmm. and the whole the nature of supermarkets basically and the control that they have over the food industry and food production and actually the waste of things like uh, pre-prepared sandwiches um, as a major area of food waste um, because uh, food industries are bought into contracts um, with supermarkets but supermarkets have massive sway over just those contracts and you know can pull those contracts within 24 hours so food is prepared in advance the the supermarket respond to the demand at the time ago we don't need that anymore 
and so food production is, is hindered and is inefficient as a result, but because of the power of the supermarkets in selling our food, um, they're kind of, those industries are at the mercy of that. Um, so we see a lot of waste before it even gets to the shelves, um, which is a major issue and again another argument for just not buying your food there. Um, so there's, there's serious issues around that in general um, and also the responsibilities of, of what you do with that excess food. Um, you know, afterwards, and yeah, that's some really interesting stuff around that, though, yeah. that I hadn't really thought of before. Uh huh. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it just struck me there we should buy whole food, like whole chickens. <laughs> <laughs> um, is anyone here eating less meat than they used to? Yeah, I think I saw in the news about uh, apparently in the UK we're eating 16% less meat than we used to. about. 10 years ago or whatever. I was really surprised at that. Um, but then I thought, well, you know, we've tried this a wee bit. We would try doing a, a, a one night where it's a vegetarian thing, meat-free or whatever, you know. And then you could challenge yourself to go to two nights a week or whatever. But I like that idea of a whole chicken, uh, eat whole food. Uh, also, you know... You don't need to eat the bones, so... <laughs> Just chew them. Um, and don't give them to your dog, because apparently those chicken bones aren't good. Uh, also, buy local as well, you know, your it's easier, as we said earlier on, not to buy plastic wrapped fruit and veg if you go to the grocer and um, buy a whole chicken in there in the butcher. Yeah, and I think on, on that as well, we kind of have to, you know, sort of sometimes we think if I don't eat meat and eat something with, that um, is a meat substitute that looks like meat that tastes like meat that comes in a package with meat related kind of things on it that we're doing really well but we need to ask ourselves well what are the food miles on that meat substitute how much electricity was used to generate that meat substitute you know was that meat substitute grown somewhere in, under a greenhouse with a load of electric pumping you know what is what is the the environmental impact of meat substitutes i think would be a really good thing and it probably will become a, a you know a, a bigger issue but the food miles thing is i think um that there's 25% less um, impact on the environment for, for people who buy their stuff locally based on food mines and, and all sorts of different things. But I think it's, it's about us actually. You know, I think what you said at the start, Laura, and I, this is me on the wind up now, okay? Um, it's about the heart, you know? And when we walk, when, when our heart is postured towards God and towards others and towards creation, we will walk carefully and we make more careful decisions and we will think deeper about things. And that will cause us to make a lot of incremental changes in our lives and our lifestyles, which build up to something bigger. But ultimately as well, you know, I was talking about something else the other day and I said, you know, at the end of our lives, we will stand before God and give an account for how we have lived. And... I think that will be right across the board in terms of everything. And we can't use the excuse before God that, well, there was no point in me looking after the envir environment because big businesses weren't, because we're not asked to give an account for how big businesses operate. We're not asked to give an account for how other people behave. We're, we're asked to give an account for how what, what we have done with what God has given us. And I think that ultimate kind of idea of stewardship and, and how your stewardship affects other people is something that as we walk carefully before God it will, we, it will look different and the exciting thing is 
that you know as Stephen said earlier sometimes we have to choose to make a prophetic statement by how we live and what we do and that in some ways maybe other people might catch that and follow that and that people outside the church might look and go well there's some people in the church who really do care about the environment maybe I was wrong to think the church has nothing to say about society um, you know, I think there are lots of opportunities but I'm going to finish this now and maybe finish this with lots of questions but that's okay and um, it will be great to get some more questions and discussions over time and for us to wrestle with this stuff. As Emmanuel, what we'd love to do is to have a little group, as Stephen was talking about, that start to think about these issues um, and help us and, and inform us and maybe do some stuff practically in, in church as well. But let's um, stop and finish by probably the best thing that we can do is just to pray and to ask for God's wisdom, God's guidance, and, and his uh, hand upon all that we think, do. Yeah, Lord, we, we just thank you that um, you made an incredible, wonderful earth. And God, you made it perfect. You put it in perfect balance within the universe. Lord, that it's in, in the earth itself. The more we look into it, the more we just say, God, you are amazing. You're wonderful. You've created everything wonderfully. You have put everything in this earth in motion and in balance. And Lord, we want to be part of keeping it the way you made it and, and stewarding it well. And so I pray that you would come and stir our hearts, God, to walk carefully and humbly on this earth, to consider how we do things when it comes to the environment, but to consider what our actions do in terms of how they affect others. May we find in, in all of these ways, Lord, as we make changes and decisions, as we inform ourselves, Lord, may we seek to bring glory and honour to you and to your name, to see your kingdom come on this earth as it is in heaven. Amen. All right, give uh, our wee panel a round of applause. Thank you so much.